Welcome to Women in Analytics After Hours, the podcast where we hang out and learn with the WA community. Each episode, we sit down with women in the data and analytics space to talk about what they do, how they got there, where they found analytics along the way, and more. I'm your host, Lauren Burke, and I'd like to thank you for joining us. Today, I am so excited to have Tanya Zapkina joining us. Tanya is a principal at her analytics consulting practice, Probabilistically, where her goal is to help companies make better decisions based on data. With over 20 years in the field, Tanya's expertise comes from leading the analytics function for Fortune 500 companies in the retail and telecom industries. Her experience spans from qualitative market research in the fashion industry to building an enterprise data warehouse for an online publishing company. Tanya has an MBA in marketing from The Ohio State University and recently earned a graduate certificate in data science from the Harvard University Extension School. She has joined us today for a very interesting conversation on marketing and digital analytics, and I hope you enjoy listening along. So welcome, Tanya, and thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for inviting me, Lauren. Absolutely. So you have been in the analytics space for over 20 years, and in that time, you've held a lot of different roles, from getting started in finance to your transition into marketing. Could you tell us a little bit more about your background and the path you've taken? Great question. So I did start in finance. That was in my previous life. I spent a couple of years on the markets, and I decided to get an MBA. I got my MBA at Ohio State here in Columbus. And when I started taking finance classes, because I meant to have a major in finance, I realized that I had been exposed to all of this information. It was kind of boring to me. So since I'm already in the program, how about I take other classes? And one of the classes that I took was marketing, and I really liked it. So I decided to switch to marketing, but with a quantitative twist to it. So at that time, most of the stuff around marketing that was quantitative was market research, or sometimes they call it consumer insight. So that's where I ended up in my first job with limited brands, now L brands. And uh, I mostly started on the market research side, but they also worked on their database, which was the consumer database. So way back in the day, big companies would have their sales database where they would record sales, you know, by the type of item, the skew, the color, the size, all of that stuff. Obviously, the stores where the items were sold. So you could do all sorts of kind of basic analysis, but they could not bring the transactions of the same customer together. So this particular company had its online business already and catalog business. So they had some customer information. They also were able to get some of the customer data through their credit card. And they started to string together the transactions to understand what customers buy you know, over time, what is the frequency and started to analyze it to understand consumer behavior. And this was kind of the first transition of the industry from just having these separate transactions and going into understanding of how the consumer behaves. So in my job in a cable company, that kind of was at the next level. I was looking at the subscription records, which are by their nature put together based on the account number. And the cable company does know a lot about you because they have your address and they can buy all sorts of demographic information about you. 
So that was the transition. And of course, during that period of time, e-commerce and digital marketing became a big thing. So I got exposed to the digital side of the business, particularly kind of on the sales side, e-commerce side, because all of the things that you've learned from the analysis of store sales, a lot of them are applicable on the e-commerce side. So my, uh, my skill set kind of expanded that way. That makes sense. So you mentioned that your career path kind of followed the development of the industry. Uh, very closely. What key developments in marketing and data collection tech do you think had the greatest impact over the years? Yes, as I mentioned, the stringing together of the data from the separate transactions into understanding of customers, how they behave and how to acquire them, how to retain them, lifetime value, loyalty analysis, all of that was possible based on all of these data developments, collecting the data, putting it together, bringing it together. So data integration is a big, big thing in in marketing analytics, obviously the e-commerce, but now the cloud computing is a big thing. And so in one of my most recent projects, I was working with a cloud data warehouse. And this was quite honestly, basically life-changing for a marketing analytics person who has never done hardcore data engineering or, you know, data integration to go in and see how it works and how easy it had become. I'm not a database administrator, but I was able to administer a cloud serverless data warehouse with very little issues. So these technological developments take marketing analytics to the next level. Right. I feel like in the last 10, 20 years, a lot more of our personal data has become so much more accessible to companies with just all of the different technologies that we now sort of expect to just have access to on a daily basis, not just our computers, having an email, but also having all of our different social media accounts, having a mini computer in our hand, all the time collecting data about pretty much everything we're doing, our personal data, where we're going, how we're interacting with others. And I imagine having all of that available makes marketing much more easy because you just have so much more to learn about the people you're trying to market to, right? And then that just paints a better picture. Yeah. Yes. The data collection part, just like all over the world, like we know that we are generating and collecting more data than we had ever been. The same is true. Does it make it easy for us to market? Not always. That's a different problem to solve. It definitely feels like we've seen a lot more potential with marketing, right? And a lot more potential with how we can potentially combine different efforts to make marketing more effective. And so in the multiple industries you've worked in, so retail and telecom, you've probably seen marketing analytics grow and sort of integrate with some other business functions to make that more accessible and make those marketing efforts more successful, right? Yes, correct. So though we call it marketing analytics because about 80% of our work is with the marketing department, a lot of our work is actually with other functions. For example, if you were to try to run a test in a store that involved 
certain items or locations or staffing level, that would not be part of marketing. And even if it's part of marketing, you still have to work with operations to make sure that this test happens. So as soon as you move from just looking at the data and trying to get some sort of insight from it to trying to implement the recommendations from that insight in real life, you have to work with operations. And then that's where you have to prove that your recommendation works. Right. So Tanya, a lot of your earliest experience in the analytics space was with transaction data, as you said. And so as you transitioned more into the digital analytics space, what kind of similarities and differences did you notice? Oh, it's a great question. So a lot of things about digital, the way I approach it is usually from the standpoint of sales. So as a marketing analytics person, you come in with a company that does digital business. The first thing you analyze is sales. And you have the sales and sales, they either happened or they didn't. And you know for sure. And you can figure out the data. You can make it match to the penny. And then you get into the web log data. And one system says one thing, the other system says different thing, that system says different thing, and you're really confused and you go back to the definitions, you bring it tighter, but because of objective factors like privacy laws or, you know, information that has been lost in transition from one system into another, different parameters being stripped from the transactions or the logs, you lose some of it. And generally speaking, web data is of different quality. It's just not the same amount of certainty as the transactional data. But also there's things that popping up that are just kind of nobody expected and nobody knew it and nobody really noticed that take a lot of validation. Sometimes there's duplicate records. Sometimes there's other artifacts of data that kind of make it into that web data. And cleaning and validation is such a huge task for that particular area that it's really overwhelming. So a lot of time, my recommendation for the web data is look at the very beginning, look at the very end. There's a lot of things that can happen in the middle that can really confuse you. So maybe don't rely on those things quite as much. But at the end of the process, you're going to have to have sales. Let's say you're doing advertising. At the beginning of the process, you're going to have money that's being paid for that advertising. And these are very specific things that you cannot, you know, increase or decrease or duplicate or do anything unusual with them. So that's kind of my view of the web data, that it's really fluid and it requires a lot of validation. And it's quite quite expensive to work with because it requires so much validation. Because it's sort of in a different, you're looking at it in a different way. It's more real time as opposed to a list of historical data pieces that you have a very concrete record of. It's much more messy. And I think that's pretty common in many fields as we're getting access to more and more data. Oftentimes the data that we already had was in a very nice format. It was very clean. And as we're trying to get access to more and more different types of data, a lot of times that's the data we didn't work with for a reason because Mm -hmm. it is in a messy format. It takes a little bit more effort. That's a really good point you made. Back to your point about companies being able to track us and, you know, use our information for marketing and targeting, they can 
accept that data is messy and it's expensive to use. That's a big barrier for using this data more effectively. Yeah, I've seen a lot more of that in more recent years. You're looking for people that have experience with more specialized data, maybe GPS data, maybe telemetrics data if you're working at a automotive insurance company, right? You're looking for those more specialized skill sets that can deal with that data because that's the data that is going to put your company ahead of the competition. And so I feel like there's much more of a focus on that nowadays, especially in marketing, right? Because we're always going to need marketing. We're always going to need digital analytics to know who we're selling to, how we can best sell to those people and how we can convince them to purchase or upgrade the product, right? Yes, that's correct. Awesome. So you, in the last few years, branched out on your own and you started your own analytics consulting practice. As you were doing that, how did you define the areas that you wanted your practice to focus on? Well, of course, I wanted to do advanced analytics, AI, and machine learning, but very quickly, I realized that most companies don't need that. (laughs) Um, That's kind of a joke because most people in marketing analytics realize that every company wants to do AI and machine learning, but clean data solves 90% of issues. My approach is to be very practical. What do you really need? Let's get the basics done. Let's get you more information, more actionable information, nice reporting. Let's get you clean data on a regular basis. And then we'll see what we can do with this. Is there truly a need? And that need, is that to have a machine learning model? Is it going to truly improve the business? How can we assess if we're going to use this model to truly improve your business as opposed to, quite honestly, going back and figuring out which variables impact your business and by how much and how you can use that more streamlined information to improve your business. So. Like if you think of any model, it has a couple of big factors. You can either do the model or you can just use these factors in your decision making. So there are different approaches. I think this is an amazing point to make that applies to every area you're working with data. You don't always need a model. And if you do, a lot of times the simpler model is the best model for the task, right? Occam's razor, you don't need to overcomplicate anything when something simple will do. And I think that very heavily applies to any work you're doing with data, especially when you're just getting started, right? Everyone hears the buzzwords. Everyone wants to jump in. They want to say, we're doing machine learning. We're doing artificial intelligence work. We're doing all of these very complicated practices behind the scenes that are making these decisions. When in reality, if you just get your data into a better format, some of the impact that that's going to make and the success and positive turnaround that you're going to get from that is probably better than you could get from getting someone to just run one machine learning model, one neural network that really isn't going to give you the insight you need to make the decisions that are most pertinent at the time, right? Yes. And I don't know if you heard that saying that every model is a regression. And I truly believe that when you strip down every model, if it's non-linear, you can transform your variables and make it a regression. And at the end of the day, regression suffices a lot and it's very explainable. And you can use that information to make decisions a bit better and understand what's going on in your business a bit better. Yes, I think that is one of the many sort of analytics tropes that we have all heard of over the years. A lot of times when you're dealing with Any type of data, I'm sure marketing and digital analytics aren't safe from this either, right? Some of the bias and misconceptions that you might fall into when you're just getting started. What kind of other analytics tropes have you run into over the years? 
So there are several things that I've been asked about consistently over the years. So let's discuss. So one of them is the pregnant target customer. And the trope, the legend goes that Target sent MLPs to a customer very early in pregnancy, advertising some sort of baby item. And at that point, none of the people in her household knew about the pregnancy. So Target was clairvoyant predicting that she would be pregnant when nobody else knew. And I really hate to disappoint you on this one. It may have happened. Let's assume that it had happened, but we don't have the full information. Target is a kind of company, it's a large company and it does a lot of mail. And I work for a large company that did a lot of mail. And I have to tell you, it's a scale game. You are sending out hundreds of thousands to millions of pieces. It won't pay for the effort if you send out, I don't know, a thousand or 10,000 pieces. It's a scale game. And you are sending out with a particular type of appeal to a particular demographic. So if you send out a million pieces to young women, then some of them would inevitably turn out to be pregnant and some of them would be early enough that nobody in their household would know about it. So basically it's survivorship bias. So you kind of plucked one person and say, oh yeah, look at clear voice, but you're ignoring all of the rest of the mail that had happened at the same time. This is one of my favorite examples of us very highly overestimating the ability of our models without really understanding the specific domain that the model is running in. And I love this one because it also fits very well for the topic of this episode, marketing, right? Because at the end of the day, this turns out to be very, very successful marketing for Target's data science team, for them to be able to say that we predicted the pregnancy of a girl before she, before even her family knew, when reality, it probably falls a lot more likely into the category of what you're describing, where we got very lucky and maybe the model is able to predict which people are slightly more likely to buy these products. But a lot of times it really falls into how similar they are to other customers, right? Or even just Mm -hmm. we send it out to so many people and some of them got mad, but it really wasn't the intention of the model to target this many specific people. I think this is a really good example of that. Yes, this is something that's being discussed a lot as uh, this example of very precise uh, predictive modeling. And, you know, people at Target are just like us. <laughs> They're just fumbling through their job trying to make that model better. That's that's all it is. <laughs> right. We're all just trying to model our data to make some sort of decision, make something a little bit more successful. Yeah. So an- another example that I get asked a lot is the diapers and the beer. And I think this is really interesting because it can illustrate in a very particular way different types of analytics. So the legend goes that a grocery store figured out that people who buy diapers, baby diapers, also buy beer. And they put together the beer and the diapers in the same aisle so they can have more sales. Now let's break it down. The first part, people who buy baby diapers are more likely to buy beer. That's the predictive model that we talked about. One factor predictive model. Now, the recommendation to put these items together is actually a prescriptive model. And there's a space between them that called leap of faith because we've made recommendation without actually 
testing the recommendation. And that's the difference between predictive and prescriptive analytics. So if you go online and you look up prescriptive analytics in marketing, what you're going to find is a lot of artificial intelligence, machine learning, very advanced modeling. No, no, no. The basic prescriptive model is an A-B test. And an A-B test in this case would be we're now knowing this predictive relationship. How would you use it to make money? Would you put it together? And so to make sure that they don't forget to buy beer, of course, they're not, not going to forget to buy diapers. Or are you going to put them in different corners of the store? So they walk through the store and pick up some of the impulse purchases. Or maybe you use a different configuration. So all of these things make sense to a consumer. And as an analyst, I would like not to predict those things right up front. And I would recommend a test. And remember I was saying about the operations? Operations going to run this. So operation is going to be in charge of that test. And you have to work with operation to make sure that the insight that you have gained from predictive analytics actually turns into a prescriptive recommendation that helps the business. Yes, that's a really good point to make that you're looking at something and you're seeing, okay, there's a correlation here, right? But just that correlation shouldn't be the end of your analysis. It shouldn't be the end of the project. It shouldn't be, this is the decision we're making that these things are related. They should be close together. Suggesting to a test how this correlation could potentially affect people's behavior in various scenarios is a better way to do it. I think that's a kind of hallmark of the analytics data science approach, the scientific method Correct. at its best. Yes. And the last one that I get asked about, and women have been there, you go on Zappos, you look up a pair of full boots, and you look at 10 of them, and then they start following you all over the internet. And what is it and why is, is it there? Well, it's called retargeting or remarketing. and I have to tell you, it's creepy. <laughs> so I have to agree that this is not, probably not the best way to use the resources, but where it comes from, it's digital marketing. And digital marketing is very conversion rate oriented. This is what they're trying to solve for. They're trying to get you to go back to the store and buy these. And if they know that you're interested in and especially if you have already made the decision to go back to that store and buy them, then they can waste their money to reacquire you again because it's going to have an amazing conversion rate. And that is my second problem with this approach is that it does tend to go back after the same customers, the customers that most likely to purchase from you anyway. And it does not bring any new customers, obviously only targets the people who have been to your store and looked at your items. And it's really expensive because imagine the fulfillment, the back end of that system where you have to have all of the items for every customer that looked at every item that they've looked at and having that served through advertising through on different websites. That is really expensive way to target people. Right. I saw basically just a meme somewhere, but it was like someone was looking for a new refrigerator or something and they bought the refrigerator and then it kept following them. And they're like, okay, well, Amazon, I'm not going to just buy another refrigerator and I'm not going to think, okay, I'll treat myself just one more because you keep sending me these. <laughs> and I always think about that. In your opinion, what's a better option to use than retargeting? 
There are different ways, and one of the ways, and this kind of goes into what's next for the industry, and I think Avinash Kausik is one of the evangelists of this, which is measuring incremental sales. So it's not just about conversion rate. You mentioned insurance. This is a good example. So let's say we're talking about car insurance and who would be the person who is going to have a high closure rate on car insurance, like just kind of in general. So is that the person like me who purchases car insurance once in 15 years or somebody who gets booted off their insurance every year? What is the probability of them looking for an insurance product and buying it within a reasonable period of time? So there's certain industries. It's not everybody. For example, the boots example is different because there are boot enthusiasts who will purchase 100 boots and there are people who don't purchase boots and you probably want to target boot enthusiasts. But there's others like insurance where you can only have one, where your Incentives are getting distorted by pursuing high conversion rate. So automatically you are going after the customers that are not best customers, not great long-term customers. This was particularly true for one of the businesses that I worked for, which was a cable business. You generally don't have two broadband providers in your house. So if somebody is looking, it means that they're changing the providers very often and they're pursuing low-cost options as opposed to somebody who's going to be with you for 10 years. These people are never getting targeted online because they have a low probability of conversion. So I think that's kind of where the attention is shifting is from straight up conversion rate to measurement of incremental sales and then measurement of the lifetime value associated with these sales. I know from my experience in retail a few years back that you tend to segment your customers into different groups. So you have your high value customers, you have your low value customers, and the high value ones are the ones that are most likely to make those conversions, are most likely to purchase something if you send them an email. And the low value ones are the ones that are maybe not opening the emails. Maybe they check one once every three months, things like that. I think that approach kind of mirrors what you're talking about, where you're looking at the groups of customers and who might actually be the best for you to spend your marketing efforts, spend that budget on. Yes. And in different industries, this could be different correlations. Some of them could be highly likely to purchase and some of them are not. And you have to customize your marketing analytics solution to the particular task and particular kind of customer that you have. Right. That's what a lot of analytics is coming down to nowadays is customizing <laughs> your model, customizing your approach to your domain, to the users, the customers, the data. So for someone that's interested in getting into marketing or digital analytics, what suggestions would you have? There's so many resources out there. You can start doing it on your own. Do not be afraid. I have a website and the number one reason for me having a website has always been because I want to test things on my own website. It's not always possible when you work for a big corporation and you work on retention analytics, it's not always possible to try out the new and great things in like a Google Tag Manager. But if you have your own website, it's possible to do. It's possible to create a free account on AWS and 
just try things out for a year. You get to do things. Try S3 buckets. Try storing your own documents. Once you start doing S3 buckets and all of a sudden you want to connect some sort of an application to get information in and out of it, now you have to learn how to administer users. So you get sucked into it. So go in and try it. And the number one technical skill that you need to know in marketing analytics is SQL because 90% of the data is structured data and SQL is going to help you. However, if you know Excel and pivot tables, that like SQL light basically. So you already understand how it works. So pivot table in Excel, SQL, and then go out and try it out on your own. That's such good advice. If I can go back, it sounds like you're using your personal website and you're running like A-B tests on it yourself. It's not big enough, but I wish to grow it to that <laughs> size. Everyone listening, um, go view Tanya's website so she can get some more A-B testing and some fun <laughs> marketing analytics things going. <laughs> Z-Y-A-B-K-I-N-A. That's how my last name is spelled dot com. We will put all of the links, all of the things we've mentioned in the episode in the link section for the podcast. So yes, you definitely should go and we encourage you to check it out. But one of the final questions I'd like to ask is what's one resource that's helped you in your career that you think might help others who are listening? I have to go with YouTube. That's a good one. Uh, especially for technical skills and for people... Actually, I wanted to say it for people who are just starting out, but I've started, you know, YouTube appeared in the middle of my career anyway. So I've started using it extensively later on to get new skills of all of the things that have been developed while I was working on something else. So YouTube is great medium for consuming that kind of information. It's very visual. It has the explanation for you. It's it's just amazing. I don't know how people did it before YouTube. <laughs> I really like the fact that a lot of meetup groups that have gone virtual over the pandemic have started uploading their like virtual webinars, their virtual tutorials to YouTube. So I second that. I think YouTube is an amazing resource if you are looking for a tutorial, looking to just learn more on a topic, because if it's a fairly common topic, there's probably hundreds of videos on it that someone has taken the time to put together, given a talk on, given a full tutorial on how you can get started with something, which I am also, I feel like I'm a visual person too. I learn much better if you can walk me through the process. So I think that's a really good resource. Yeah. Yes. And it has information on both sides. It has the full tutorials. Like I learned Python on YouTube took a YouTube class, so to speak. And at the same time, there's specific like short videos on how to do X in Y. And it's just, it's amazing, quite honestly. And by the way, it's number two search engine after Google and obviously Google owns it. But that just tells you about the width of all sorts of information that it has. Yeah, it's definitely absolutely full of knowledge, especially for any sort of language, any sort of technical tool. So for our listeners, how can they keep up with you? Where can they find you on the internet? So I am on two websites. So I have my own personal website, zapkina.com. I have probabilistically.com, which is the website for my consulting practice. And I am mostly on LinkedIn. So you can Google me. 
I own, uh, because of my name, I own a lot of the Google search for my name, pretty much all of it. <laughs> and with the added bonus, if you Google her, she will get some more data to work with. So you should definitely do that. But thank you so much for joining us today, Tanya. It was awesome to talk with you and to learn a little bit more about marketing and digital analytics. Thank you, Lauren, for inviting me. This was a pleasure. <laughs>